You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Dirty Church. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and get ready to study God's Word together. Good morning. It's great to see you. Thanks for... Thanks for being here. It's great to have all you folks at the other campuses join us. We're here at Elgin this morning. I'm uh, really, really pleased to be at Elgin. It's great to come out here and to uh, spend some time with you. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 14. Before we get into this, I just wanted to give one quick note regarding the video that we saw just a second ago. You know, uh, a lot of people these days uh, view their church uh, differently than perhaps they should. Uh, a lot of people view their church like uh, some people would view a cruise ship. When, when you go on a cruise ship, you pay the money and you expect certain services to be provided for you. If the food's not quite good enough, you'll let the captain or whoever it is know. Um, you will write a Google re review and talk about whether or not Holland America is as good as Princess or whatever else it is. You go on a cruise so that you can be comfortable, so that you can not be bothered, but you can receive all of the infilling blessings that the cruise is offering. A lot of people view the church that way these days. It's kind of a consumer-minded thing that I come, I might even give some money, and as a result, I'm, I, I, get, I get blessed by that. And uh, if things go wrong, I will complain very much and grumble about them. Um, the image for a church is actually probably better as a battleship than a cruise ship. Uh, in a battleship, you, you have a job to do. If you don't do your job, the thing is not going to function as well as, as, it, as it could. But the kinds of things we're talking about in terms of the vision of our church going forward is more, more battleship than cruise ship. That people, at, at, we, we need everybody to be involved. We need everybody to man their places. The Lord has given you particular gifts to serve his church and your brothers and sisters in Christ to see the mission go forward. And so in the next coming years, we pray that the Lord would really be moving in all of our hearts so that we could see how it is that he's blessed us and how we can be a blessing to others in those ways. So that really is the heart of our, of our vision, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses 14 to 22 is what we're going to look at here. Um, the first time I was ever in a wedding was not when I was a little kid. I didn't hold the ring bearer's cushion or anything. It was when I was a senior in high school, and my sister got married. My oldest sister uh, had been dating her boyfriend for quite a long time, and then they decided to get married on December 30th, I think. Was, remember, it was freezing cold. And um, they asked me to be the candle lighter, which is, of course, the thing they ask your little brother to do, right? You don't, you don't immediately say, we want you to be a, uh, a groomsman because that's, that's too important. So candle lighter it is. I showed up. It was me and this other girl. And uh, they gave us these, these candle lighters, which were, were shaped kind of like a horn, like they straight, and then it had this little horn piece on the end, and it had a straight bit at the end. Now, the straight bit was where you could extend the wick out with this little lever on the bottom so that as the wick burned down, it would continue to go. So you had to keep pushing the wick out to make sure it was, it was still alight. The little horn was the way you put out the candles. So we had the candles lined up down the middle aisle and then a few on the, on the platform where they were going to get married. And before, of course, the service was an evening wedding. Before the service begins, it was my job to go down the left-hand side and this other girl's going on the right-hand side. Now, the one thing that they said to me at the beginning of this whole endeavor was, uh, whatever you do, don't let the light go out because it's going to be super awkward if the light goes out. And I'm like, oh, okay. How do you not let the light go out? You got to keep that wick going because it'll burn down, right? And you got to keep the wick going up so that it keeps, you know, enough flame. Now, I took that very much to heart. And so when we started lighting the candles, uh, I started giving it quite a bit of wick. And so I started, I lit the first one, and then I was like, ooh, gosh, that doesn't look like a big flame. And so I pushed it out a little bit, lit the second one. By the third one, I, was, I had a flame that was about halfway to the ceiling of the church. 
I looked over to the other girl, and she had it just right. But I don't want to pull it back, because if I pulled it back, it would make, might extinguish, right? So I keep my eye on it, and I keep, but I keep raising it. And honestly, the flame kept getting bigger and bigger. People are snickering at this point, and I finally got to the front of the church, and uh, <laughs> I was lighting it. It, it, it. It's on video. It is very funny, right? There's this enormous flame, like I've got a blowtorch on the left side, and this other girl who's just doing it so gently and perfectly. Anyway, we meet together, and we're supposed to walk back down the aisle, right? By, and we put out the flames, and we walk down the aisle, and I remember seeing my sister who's in her wedding gown. She's ready to come forward, and I remember her saying to me, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Uh, I was not asked to be candlelighter ever again in any weddings ever, but I was. I went from candlelighter to scripture reader. He's a Christian. Let him read 1 Corinthians 13 out of context, right? So (laughs) then I moved to groomsman, never a best man, because I guess I'm not a best, best man, but I moved to groomsman. And now I actually get the best seat in the house. Uh, I I tend to be an officiant for weddings. And so I stand right between this couple as they make these ridiculous promises to each other. Have you ever listened? Just listen to a minute to the vows. I know that, you know, people will, these days they write them out the night before so that they feel like it was coming from their heart. And it's on the back of a napkin or something like that. Sometimes they want me to read it, read it so that they, you know, then they copy what I said for the vows. But even regardless of how you do it, the, the wording is crazy. I will love only you forever and ever. And when I'm dead, my soul will seek you out and we will be joined for all eternity, you know. Sometimes they would go online and they go to the websites that, uh, that give you kind of old fat. This is a really important ceremony, so we've got to use a little bit more old-fashioned language, which, of course, I think is great. I will forsake all other claims to my love and fidelity. They, they don't know what that means. I will forsake all other claims to my love and fidelity. And it takes them a week to forsake other claims, you know, like to not forsake other claims. So they love and fidelity. In fact, most of the marriages that end, end because those vows were not kept. There's lots of ways you can not not forsake claims to your love and fidelity. There's There's lots of ways that you can turn your heart and pin it to other things. Usually in marriage, it can be like your work. It can end up being... You know, uh, your, your success as a per- whatever, it, or it can be another person, right? <laughs> and there's a devastating thing that happens when you've been married and made all of these promises and vows, and the person that you made the vows to and they to you all of a sudden run, run off to some other love. I don't know if there's a pain in the world that's quite like that. Some of you felt that pain. I'm telling you all about this wedding imagery because basically this is the language that the Bible uses to describe God's relationship with his people. The bride of Christ, right? That's what his church is. The bride of Christ. He, our husband. We are betrothed. In the Old Testament, God Yahweh came and he won the heart of Israel and they were together in a, in a covenant contracted marriage type of relationship. And God said, don't run over, run off to any other, any other gods or goddesses. And of course the people of Israel did constantly run off. So God, the jilted lover, even ends up choosing this, uh, This prophet, Hosea, and says, listen, I need you to go and marry a a, a harlot. I need you to have kids with her. And she's going to keep running away from you you, so that you and the people of Israel have like a live demonstration of what it's like to be me. The idea, of course, like any marriage, is that the expectation is those who belong to God only have eyes for him. He has their full allegiance. And that's what this passage is about. 
It's about allegiance to God and how much God cares about that and how we can foster that kind of allegiance. The Apostle Paul actually gives some warnings here. He talks about the people of Corinth and how their allegiance had been divided and what's going to happen because of that. So I'm trying to ask and answer this question as we go through this in the next few minutes. How is it that we can foster our allegiance to God? If we are in this marital relationship with God, how is it that we can be good spouses? How can we foster our marriage instead of just let it, you know, drift away so that it ends up not existing? How do we remain committed? So in some ways, I'm kind of feel like I'm at a marriage conference and I'm giving you marriage advice, but not with your spouse, with the true spouse, Jesus. So three things I'm going to point out here regarding uh, our allegiance to God and how we can continue in it. Number one, our allegiance to God must be lovingly protected. Our allegiance to God must be lovingly protected. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 with me. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So this is the conclusion of an argument that he's been making. What's the argument? Well, just immediately preceding this, he said, uh, the people of Israel are a great example for you and for me regarding what it looks like for people to start off faithfully, you know, following God and then to walk away from him and not reach what they were promised. So they come across uh, the Red Sea. God saves them, leads them by a pillar of cloud and fire out of oppression from Egypt. They come across the Red Sea. Paul says they've been baptized. They've had a baptism in there. They have a saving, you know, testimony. If you stood them up in front of your church, they'd be like, you want to know what my testimony is? I was under oppression making bricks and then God showed up and he split the sea. Way better than mine. They get out into the desert. They're on their way to the promised land. They get out into the wilderness. And of course, they, they eat manna. So they have bread from God. They have water from God. They have drink from God. Just like you have had a baptism story. Just like you have a story about how you were converted. Just like you, Christian, can come to church and you take the bread and you take the wine in communion. Paul's point is, you're just like them. So you should learn the lesson that they teach you. Which is, the people who crossed the Red Sea and were saved are the same people who fell in the wilderness because of disobedience. who did not reach what was promised, the promised land, because they did not continue to submit to the God who called them. So, Christian, says Paul, if you continue to follow Christ, yes, you will reach the, the, the promised end. But if you choose along the way not to follow him anymore, if you choose another love... If you turn away from him, all will be lost. Paul even says about himself, look, I, I'm not even taking, you know, uh, making assumptions about it. I, I need to continue. That's why I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest I, after preaching to others, might lose out. Therefore... <laughs> Flee from idolatry. Free from the other loves. Free from the other things that are going to draw your attention away from the living God. That, that word flee is actually a pretty strong word in the original language here in Greek. Um, it, it means to, it's used a lot of times in, in military um, contexts. It's the thing that you do when you've lost the battle. Right? It, which is not, oh, we lost Okay, let's just walk in this. It's, it's, ah, run. One of the things in my last church that we did with our staff is we would go up to Whistler uh, every year or so to have a staff retreat. Whistler is one of the great ski mountains in the, in the world. We'd go in, usually in August. So it was kind of during the summertime, which is, it's beautiful up there. They got some great golf courses. There's one called Whistler Golf Club. We got a special deal there. So we'd have like a pastor's golf cup where all the pastors would join together in different teams and then we would compete against, against others. 
There's a youth pastor that we had, and he was on my team. He was from uh, Ontario, which means not too smart, just so you know. So he's from Ontario, and uh, he's not really spent a whole lot of time in the woods. I mean, when I mean woods, I mean like mountain woods where bears show up and these sorts of things, mountain lions and these things. He's, so he's really enamored by that kind of thing. You go to Whistler, I promise you will see some bears. It will happen. You'll see a black bear or two. So uh, we're teeing off on the third tee. There's four of us in the group. First three of us go. We hit our shots. He, he finally lines up his shot, and he hits it. And when the ball is halfway you know, to the green, out of the, out of the bushes, very near the green, comes this baby black bear. Now, here's a little rule when you go to Whistler. Um, if there's a baby bear, there's a mama bear. Okay? It's mama, it, you know, they're helicopter parents, these bears. And so uh, my friend Sean, he hits the shot, and then he looks down, and he's got, he didn't even follow where the ball is. He went, oh, a baby bear! He takes his phone out, and he starts running up to the green on this par three. And the three others of us are like, what are you doing? And he's like, I just want a picture. He's so cute. Run away. No, stop. No, no, it's going to be fine. He's got his driver in his hand running up there, you know. Mama, when he reaches the edge of the green, Mama comes out, and she's not happy. She's not happy that the guy with the big mallet in his hand is coming toward her baby, and so she does the brown bear thing, gets on her back, haunches, never seen shot, I've never seen somebody stop in midair like that, soil themselves and turn around so quick, but honestly, he turned around and he started running, you know. Flee. Now I know the stupid story, right? To give, well, you, to give a picture of what it looks like to flee from idolatry. The reason I'm telling you this is because it's dangerous. That's, that's the point. Listen, if you don't flee from idolatry, if you don't run away from these other loves, there's a really good chance they're going to eat you. Which means that what Paul is doing by warning you about the bear by warning you about what might happen if you continue to play around with other idols, if you continue to play around with other loves that draw your attention away from Jesus himself, it means that it's a loving thing. Hear that. Please hear me. I, I know the way that you and I conceive of love in our, in our modern world is love is constant affirmation. It is constantly telling the other how great they are, how good they are. Love does not contradict because contradicting is telling the other person that, you know, their person has some flaws or difficulties. It's not something that you, if you tell a kid, you know, don't, don't do that particular thing. These days they're like, why you don't love me? And you as a parent are like, no, I'm telling you because I love you. When I tell you not to go over there and to play with the bear, I love you. I don't you want you to, to get, to get Ethan, Ethan. <laughs> eaten, either of them, I don't. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Seriously, this is, this is a fascinating passage. This is a passage where Jesus is, um, he's, he's, Speaking to this rich ruler who showed up and said, look, uh, how do I get saved? And he says, you keep the law. And the ruler says, I kept it all. And Jesus is like, no, you didn't. One thing you lack, he says. Now, in Mark's gospel, Mark adds one little phrase in this. Right before he challenges this rich ruler and tells him what he must do, in order to abandon the other love in his life that's getting in the way of his love for Jesus. Mark adds this little phrase, and Jesus, looking at him, he's the only one who says this, loved him. And then said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me. Wait a minute. So the command 
to do this crazy thing that will be met with resistance from this guy is actually a loving act. Yeah, that's right. You want to be like Jesus? You love people by warning them of what's to come. By loving them, you, you, you love them by warning them of the danger of the idol that they've placed in their hearts. See, God helps us finish the race of faith through faithful teaching in his local church. And the local church if, that we attend, if it doesn't warn us of the consequences of not continuing or avoids the topic of coming wrath altogether, it is not doing you any favors. Please hear me. The likelihood is that most people in this room will be at another church. Another, You're going to end up having a church shop. Maybe you're doing it right now. The church that you choose has to have teaching that is faithful to the word of God and is pressing you on into love and obedience. And that's not always going to make you feel good. The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. Just think about that. What do you do with swords? Well, they make you feel good. No, they don't. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training. These are not therapeutic, feel better things. These are things that say, no, I love you enough to tell you the truth about the Bible so that your mind can be reformed and renewed and you can truly follow Christ and abandon the idols that your heart so want to run away to. It's a loving thing. There's a road that actually leads up to Whistler. It's called the Sea to Sky Highway. It's one of the most beautiful roads in the world. Mountains go up here. The cliff goes down there. And there's a, the sea is right there. It's a magnificent road. Years ago, it used to be just a double lane. Now it's a little bit wider because of the Olympics we're on in 2010. But it used to just be a double lane road. In some places, they didn't even put warning signs up, you know? You'd be driving around this thing. Kids, guys would be driving as fast as they can because it's fun. It's one of these roads, right? And so they're driving as fast as they can, and there aren't any warning signs up there. Is this a loving act by the British Columbian government to not put warning signs up on the side of the road? No, it's quite hateful. <laughs> the warning signs serve a wonderful purpose. They, they keep you... On the road. Yeah, that, that's precisely what you need. If you want to finish the race of faith, don't trust leaders reporting only happy things. This is what I mean by allegiance to God must be lovingly protected. That's why you should probably come to church, because that's the only place you're going to be hearing that kind of thing. It's also another, the place where something else is going to happen. So first, our allegiance to God must be lovingly protected. Second, though, our allegiance to God must be regularly reaffirmed. So, verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, says Paul. Look, at, I, Let's just reason together for a minute. You guys are smart folks. Let's judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What's he talking about? The cup and the bread. Well, pretty clearly, he, he's talking about uh, communion. So those of you who are kind of new to the faith and maybe haven't experienced all that, maybe you're just checking Christianity out or church out. Communion is this thing that the church does repeatedly when we give a little cup full of juice and a little piece of bread. And the idea is that these symbolize the body of Christ, right, and the blood of Christ. And so when we, when we take this together as a church every month or so, we end up uh, remembering the Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross for us. So it's, it's, a, it's a meal in quotes, of remembrance. And most Christians don't have a clue what it means. <laughs> they, we just kind of do it. We, I mean, we've done it for years. Like, I, if you grew up in a Christian church, you know this full well. They used, to do, they used to do it so that you actually had a common cup, which after COVID sounds, what? <laughs> like, 
A common cup means that, you know, hey, I'm going to start it off. I drink from the cup and then I hand it down here and then he drinks and then he, you know, he wipes it off with this little cloth because that's going to get away, get rid of all the COVID. And then, and then the next person, the next person, the next person, the next person, you do not want to be in the back of the room for this event, right? Because if you're the last person, you look down there and there's little floaties and stuff in there, you know, and... Then you got this challenge because you're like, do I drink the blood of Christ or do I leave the floaty? Like, what do I do? Drink it, drink it, you know, and down it goes. Later up it comes. If you grew up in a Catholic church, communion, the Eucharist, you had to go forward and uh, the priest puts it on your tongue and you have to keep it down. has to stay in your tongue. And then you, then you take it in. If there's some left over, it goes in this little hut. Because it's the actual body of Christ is what they believe. Can't waste it. Priests got to eat it later. Some churches uh, do it so that you come forward. I was at a church speaking actually one time at a church and we were taking communion. It's quite a large church. And uh, they said, we're going to come forward and there's two people up here and the first person's going to give you the bread and say the body of Christ broken for you. And then you're going to get the cup and it's going to be the blood of Christ shed for you. And then you're supposed to take it and go and sit down and, and take it. Um, I don't ever know what direction the lines go in that. So the times that I've done it, I always go backwards. This massive church is a huge line down here, but I was sitting over here and I was like, what's the difference? And so I was going this way, swimming upstream the whole way. People giving me stink eye during this unity meal. <laughs> Did you know the rules? I was at a church, honestly, I was at a church uh, where it was a huge church. And they said halfway through the service, okay, we're going to take communion now. A lot of you guys Christians, uh, we're just going to take it really quickly. Uh, for those of you who grabbed a little cup and a bread on the way in, but don't know what it is, just eat it. It's kind of a mid-service snack. Okay. What shocked me, though, is that nobody else seemed to be bothered by that. Yeah, it's pretty much a mid-service snack. Nobody knows when the world communion is. What does it signify? What's going on? Paul, here, he's assuming you do know. To make his argument, he's like, okay, so everybody, let's think about communion. What is happening at communion? And he, leans, he lists two big things. Number one, communion is a unity meal. It's a meal that emphasizes the unity of Christ because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we eat communion, says the Apostle Paul, we are eating a statement or making a statement by eating that we are all one in Christ. This, the Corinthians get in big trouble for this. They actually, uh, uh, they don't understand that this is part of what's going on here. And so what they're doing is they actually have a full meal and the rich people can show up at, at noon because they don't work. And they start eating and drinking. And by the time five o'clock rolls out around and, you know, the, the, the work day's done, there's a whole bunch of people who are poorer from the church show up and they're, they have to sit further away from the table because all the rich people took up the best seats. And all of the food is basically picked over or, or gone, and the, the wine is largely gone, and the people are, are drunk. And this is what they were doing. Hey, we're celebrating communion, man. And then the poor people come, hey, I don't know where all the wine went. And so Paul's really upset with the Corinthians because what they're doing is actually acting in opposition to the very meaning of communion. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another, another one gets drunk. What? Don't you love the Bible? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Like if you really wanted to do this, you could stay at home and drink all your own wine. Or do you despise the church of God, and humiliate those who have nothing. Don't you see that what you're doing is you're acting in such a way that reminds them of their socioeconomic difference with you. You're doing things that bring division during a meal that is meant to emphasize unity. Which is why whenever we take communion, 
one of the things we try to say is, listen, um, we're going to take communion, but we're going to take it all together. Everybody, you know, you get your stuff, hold on to it, and we're going to take it together. It's a sign of our unity in the body. We also say things like, hey, you know, um, if you've got an issue with another brother or sister in in Christ, right? You're holding grudge or something like that. Why don't you, you let this communion be a reminder to you to sort that out because it's a meal about our unity. The Corinthians weren't sorting it out and God, God actually says, look, um, some of you have fallen asleep because in other words, some of you have died because you've eaten communion wrong. You've eaten against the body. So he's very serious, right? God's very serious about how it is that you take communion and the attitude you have toward the entire body when you do it. But secondly, and this is really Paul's big point here, right? What else does communion mean? Well, um, he says, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not, look at that word, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word means a, uh, a strong commitment to or an allegiance to. When we take the cup, we are declaring our allegiance to Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Aren't we declaring, in other words, that I am his and he is mine and that we once made a covenant together at my baptism where I declared publicly that I will forever and always be his and I will forsake all other claims to my love and fidelity. And then you get to come every week, every month, and you get to come to church and you get to celebrate that commitment and what was done that, was, that made it possible, Jesus dies on a cross and gives you his body and his blood so that you might live. And then you get to every time you take communion, remember Jesus. Remember that he is yours. It is an act, in other words, of reaffirmation. Regular reaffirmation. The Romans actually used to have a cultic meal that was basically this. If you were a school teacher you would actually go to a meal during your, your, uh, your uh, trade union meeting. You would actually go to a meal and you would celebrate uh, a dinner together that was, that was eaten in honor of the god of schools, right? Pencilos or whatever. That's a good joke. Pencil, do you see the pencil? Okay, these are better if I don't have to explain them though. So you, you eat and you take the, the cup and you pour out what we call a libation on the ground. Oh, we are eating in communion with you. The deity is there. You are eating in commitment to them. It's a participation with them. The Jews did the same basic thing. They used to take the Passover meal and they did it every year so that they would remember what God had done when he freed, they freed them from Egypt. You're supposed to take this meal and you're supposed to eat it and you're supposed to remember what I've done for you and remember that what I did for you is a sign of my covenant to you and it's a reaffirmation of your covenant with me. So the best way maybe to explain all of this is to say, well, um, the Lord's suffer, Supper is, is an act that reaffirms my allegiance to Christ like the Pledge of Allegiance reaffirms, reaffirms my allegiance to the United States of America. You remember the Pledge of Allegiance? I don't even know if they do it anymore. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God. You know it. You know it. You were forced to say it every day. Why were they forcing you to say it every day? Well, because they wanted to give you a regular moment to re reconnect with the fact that you're an American and that your highest allegiance, nationally speaking, is to the United States of America. What happens, though, when we take, when we say the, the Pledge of Allegiance is that it ends up getting really, really boring and useless in our minds because we're like, we're going to say it again. And that's exactly what happens with people when it comes to communion. Oh, great. It's communion Sunday. So maybe the better image for us to use here is it's a kind of a marriage renewal service. You ever done those? A marriage recommitment? 
Usually it happens because one of the partners in the marriage has gone away and done something stupid or they've drifted away from each other and they want to reconnect. And that is exactly, that is exactly what the Lord's Supper is. You don't clean yourself up to take the bread and drink the cup. You don't say, well, I got to get myself all morally sorted. No, you come wicked and empty and you receive the grace that Christ gives you. And you recommit yourself to this covenant. We're reminded of the kindness and grace of our Lord. So this, this Lord's Supper is a regular reaffirmation that helps us continue in the faith, which is why coming to church is so great. If you want to continue your allegiance to Jesus, we even have like ordinances that help you. <laughs> Finally... Our allegiance to God must be lovingly protected. Our allegiance to God must be regularly reaffirmed. And our allegiance to God must be unashamedly uncompromising. So look at verse 18. He, he's making a real argument here. And he's trying to say, okay, you guys have this covenant meal at communion where you reaffirm things. And what it does is it is a binding of you to God. My allegiance is with God. Consider the people of Israel, he says. We just did. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, what he's talking about here is when uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, the people start, you know, hey, where did he go? And they end up making a golden calf. And he's saying, all right, consider them at that moment. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants, same word, Aren't they binding themselves in the altar? Aren't they basically saying, oh, this great golden calf is the God that I will serve forever and ever, forsaking all other claims to my love and fidelity? Yeah, that's exactly what they were doing. So what you had is a bunch of people who were saved, who had a commitment and covenant with God Almighty, who ended up saying, yeah, I'm going to make a deal, the same deal with this other deity, just in case this first deity, Yahweh, doesn't come through for me. My backup plan is the golden calf. What do I imply then, says Paul, that food offered to idols is anything? Because this is the issue they're dealing with. If I come to faith in Christ, do I go back to my school board meeting worshiping, you know, Pencilos? Can, can I do, as a Christian, can I go do that? Because look, the idol's meaning, the pencilos is nothing. Can I go back and do that? Some in the church were like, no, that's, that's idolatry. And others were like, ah, it's not a big deal because pencilos is not real. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. There is a spiritual reality behind what's going on there, says Paul. And you don't want to mess with the bear. Why would you want to mess with the bear? It has the potential of dragging your heart away with it. Eating you. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't love both. You have to love one. Shall we provoke the Lord to, oh, there's the word, jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That word right there is all over the Bible. Our God is a jealous God. And you cannot cheat on God without arousing his jealousy. He warns about it all over the place. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 1. This is when God comes and he gives the Ten Commandments and it starts. The first commandment, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who saved you out of the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You hate me if you pin your heart to another deity. If you pin your heart to something else that, is, that you believe is going to deliver you from all of the difficulties in your life, if you pin your heart to something where you say, if I just had that thing, I would be happy. In the New Testament, James he gets, on, he gets into, the, into the action, and he says, you adulterous people, look at the language. Don't you understand that you are, are wed to Christ? You are the bride of Christ? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world, a pinning of your heart to the things of the world, is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's not like a middle ground where you can have one foot in and one foot out, depending on your company. Well, I'm kind of a Christian today, but also I'm not. I'm going to trust God to provide me all of what I need, and I'm also going to trust all my money. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy to God, or do you suppose it's it's for no purpose that... The scripture says he yearns what? Jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. You, you, you have a jealous God. I had a dear friend. I remember sitting down with him. I had a dear friend. and I, We had to talk because his spouse, uh, his wife had cheated on him like four times. Each time he had taken her back. I remember asking, I had told him about that Hosea and Gomer story, the Hosea, you know, hey, but this is the picture of God. Do you, have, you, do you have it in you to do that again, to be a picture of grace, the kind of grace that God shows by hunting down your spouse and bringing her back? He said, Jeff, I've done that three times. I just am so devastated. Did our promises mean Nothing. You want to know what, it, what, what God feels like when you turn to other things to provide the things that only he can? Devastated. Jealousy. He won't let you go away easily because he's jealous. He's driven by, listen now, loving jealousy. The difference between me and God is that if I have a girlfriend... I don't. Okay, are we clear on that? I don't have a girlfriend. If I have a girlfriend and she leaves me for some other guy, oh, I'm so sad and devastated for who? For me. I'm so sad because I lost this thing. Oh, woe is me. I need this thing in order for me to be happy. Oh, no. So I'm jealous. I'm very jealous. But for me, When you and I cheat on God, God is not jealous for himself. God is jealous for you, for your good. I'm jealous for my good. God's jealous for the good of the other because he knows that no matter what you replace him with, it will never be what he is. You spend the rest of your life looking for something that is as good as him and it will always fall short, always fall short. Because as Blaise Pascal said, that there is a God-shaped hole in the size of your heart. Things like money and other things, these just don't fit it. They won't, they won't, they won't, they won't work. Well, I don't worship idols, you say. Don't we? Look, I get it. We're, we don't go out and eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's not an issue for us. But here's what we do. We end up thinking that all of the needs that I have in my life can be taken care of if I have enough money. I have insurance for that, we say. I I can stave off, man, in the suburban world. I can stave off all of the difficulties that will come my way if I just have enough progressive insurance. Who's your God? 
Well, no, the Lord is my God. It's just that I have this backup plan. Look, at least I'm beautiful. Words that have never been spoken by me ever. But at least I'm beautiful. Listen, at least I have my beauty. Look, at the end of the day, I know that I'm valuable and I'm important because I'm this, because I have this. If the answer to that question is anything other than Jesus, it's an idol. And you're trusting it to provide for you so much. If If my name is good in the community, then I will be happy. If I just have the spouse, I will be happy, a boyfriend or a girl, girlfriend. If I just have blank, it will make me happy. What is blank? When you sit in the quiet of your room or waiting for somebody and you're not able to check your Twitter, when you're just sitting there and you start thinking, what would make my life better? That's the thing you're putting your hope in. That's the thing that you think is going to deliver you from all of life's hardship. That is your functional God. Now, listen to me very closely. (laughs) Jesus goes to war with those things when it comes to his people. You wonder why your life's such a mess. Why is your idol not fulfilling you? Because God disciplines those he loves. He wants to expose to you that the thing you're chasing after will never be for you what he is. He's a jealous God. He's not going to put up with divided, compromising allegiances. Our allegiance to God just has to be unashamedly uncompromising. So let me finish with a couple of really quick illustrations to try to bang that home into our hearts. Billy Graham once read this fascinating letter that he received through a couple of others. He read it at one of his crusades. And it was a letter written by a communist girl. And she described her communism and her commitment to communism to him. Listen to what she said. She said, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us will get killed or imprisoned We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists do not have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We, We have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through the subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing I am dead earnest about, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and I dream of it at night. It holds me, its hold on me grows, not lessens, as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, love affair, or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, looks, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideals and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. So if I replace the word um, communist with the word Jesus, does that describe your life? If I followed you around for a week or you followed me around for a week, but I come at the end of the week saying, whatever else is true about this person, they love Jesus. He's everything to them. 
Alan Redpath is the name of a guy who was a pastor for a lot of years, and he told this story to try to express what it means to follow Jesus. He told it about his two granddaughters, one older, one younger. The younger was about three, four years old. One day he was working at his office, and he heard the door crash open, and in came the older granddaughter. She climbed up on his lap and grabbed his neck, which is not something she usually did. So he was like, what's going on? Grabbed his neck, she looked over her shoulder, and when she looked over her shoulder, in came the littler one, not as fast, couldn't catch up to her sister when they were going to hug their granddad. The little girl comes in and she stops jealously. Oh. And the older sister said to her, I have, oh, I have all of granddad. Without saying anything, this little girl, she climbed up onto the other knee, on granddad's knee. She took granddad's arm, Alan Redpath's arm, wrapped it all around her, his other arm, wrapped it all around her, snuggled right into him, and she said to her sister, you might have all of granddad, but granddad has all of me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? That he might have all of you. Well, I don't know if he does, you say. Well, maybe then it's a time for a renewal of vows. We pray for us. Lord, I'm thankful for uh, your word. And I'm thankful for the challenge that it provokes in our hearts. I'm thankful for the demand of Christ on us. It's not a demand that is for our bad, it's for our good. There's no one like you, Jesus. There's nothing like you never has been anything like you. We will forever glory in your presence, never exhausting the joy that we have in who you are. Deliver us, Lord, from the idols in our lives. Help us to turn to you with full confidence that you alone can provide for all that we need, financially, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, all of the things. We surrender ourselves over to you, lay ourselves into your hands, Lord, for it's the safest, best place to be. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information on how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbiblechapel.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.